and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And special, special guest today is the Reverend Megan Stowe, who joins us from the New England Conference, but used to be right in uh, Upper New York with us just a few years ago, and is now a district superintendent. So if ever there were a dangerous liberal lady preacher, it would be you. <laughs> wow, that's quite an introduction. So very much welcome, Megan. Thank you. Yeah. So Megan, the place we always like to start these these podcast episodes is for to welcome you to share whatever you would like to about your spiritual journey with us. Thank you. Um, so I, I did grow up in the state of Wyoming, and I clarify that it's a state rather than the conference of Wyoming because a former conference that now is Upper New York, um, and and. I was a very involved youth. Um, we only had summer camp, church camp um, for junior high. And so when I, I was ready to go to high school, my dad said, hey, would you like to be a youth equalization member to annual conference? And I said, would I ever? And so I became a youth equalization member at, as um, a ninth grader and um started to learn random paragraphs in the Book of Discipline verbatim, mm -hmm. which is really kind of an illness, I think. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's it's um, stirred within me a, a deep passion for social justice. Um, and I grew up in the Rocky Mountain Conference, uh, which is now Mountain Sky. Mm -hmm. And um, the big conversation there was... Um, obviously LGBT inclusion. Um, I think that's been the big conversation for the past 50 years, maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, I made a very, very hard choice. My senior year of high school was I, or my junior year of high school, was I going to go to prom or was I going to go to general conference, which was actually happening in Denver? And I probably made the wrong choice. I did go to my prom. Mm -hmm. I did not go to general conference, but I have gone to every general conference since 2024 or 20 or 2004. Mm -hmm. And um, I I went as a, semin uh, a seminarian in 2004 and every general conference since then I've been a page and I will be a page again in April um, at general conference in Charlotte. If you don't mind me asking, so I actually grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, and I like joined the Methodist Church because I went to University of Denver, which is right next to Iliff School. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so did you go to Iliff or? No, I was one yeah. of those okay. weirdos that didn't. Um, my mom's best friend went to seminary and started at Iliff in uh, 2000, and at annual conference, I was always known as Bob and Ruth's little girl mm -hmm. and fine, whatever, but I wanted to be known as Megan. Mm -hmm. And so I was afraid if I went to Iliff with my mom's best friend it's being okay. there, I'd still be Bob and Ruth's little girl. Mm -hmm. And so I went to exploration in 2000 and, um, I talked with all the seminaries and, um, I, I decided to apply to Iliff to Boston University and to Claremont 
and Claremont actually flew me out there and to go to California seemed very exciting. Uh, but coming from rural Wyoming, as soon as I landed in California, I knew this was not going to be the right fit for me. And when I got to seminary, uh, to the seminary and, and did the tour, I, I just had the sense that this wasn't the right fit for me. They were trying to shoehorn me into becoming a deacon. And I felt really strongly um, in my calling um, with the sacraments. And I wanted to serve a church. And I think it's wonderful for those who are the bridge between the church and the world. But I really felt that my calling was to serve in a local church um, as their pastor. And so, um, and I just... I didn't feel smart enough to go to Claremont and there's nothing wrong with um, my intelligence or whatever, but I, I was, I was meeting with Marjorie Sue hockey and, and she's just brilliant. And um, I, I didn't, I didn't speak brilliant theologian language at that time. And I don't know that I do now either, but um, so I, I decided Boston University School of Theology, the School of the Prophets sounded perfect. If it was good enough for Martin Luther <laughs> King Jr., it was good enough for me. Um, and Boston is a, a smaller city um, and it can feel like a neighborhood. And it it was mm-hmm. it was a really great place for me. Um, unfortunately, the, the years I was there was the years that everybody died or left. Um, but my my second week of seminary was September 11th, and that event oh, wow. um, deeply bonded yes. our group. Um, I had incredible colleagues, um, uh, classmates uh, in that in that class, including uh, our now Bishop Latrell Miller Easterling uh, from Baltimore, Washington, and Peninsula Delaware Conference. Um, and uh, it's been really lovely to 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 meet um, people in seminary go to uh, the Troy conference and then come back to New England and to be alongside um, some of my classmates yeah that's beautiful yeah yes I've heard very nice things about Boston so Mm. yeah it has really been incredible and they've done some really amazing things since I left. When I was there, the only theology that was being taught was you know, systematic. You know, I don't think I read any books from somebody that wasn't dead, white, German man. I know that's not <laughs> quite true, but it felt that way. And now they're offering sure. um, a lot of liberation theology, a lot of... Um, womanist theology, things that we heard about, but we're not exposed to in seminary. So it, mm-hmm. it makes me wish that I was a little bit closer so I could take some classes or audit some classes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wish, I wish there were like online auditing options for pastors mm-hmm. from these like Hey, if you're listening out there, Methodist seminaries, maybe consider having some online auditing courses for pastors who live in places where they can't commute or are moms and or dads who have to assume the majority of childcare. There you go. <laughs> so, Our money is very green. 
But yeah. Yes. <laughs> what little of it we have. <laughs> no, what little of it we have, but we do have a professional expense budget. That's true. That's very we could justify true. auditing a seminary course. We could justify that. That's yeah, that's a good call. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. If air is such a thing were available. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And I know so, that oh, other seminaries have better options for it than BU, but um, the the professors there are just really incredible. They are. We had one from CRCDS who moved to BU. Oh, yeah. Chris Evans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember yeah. his last name. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I have, a, I have a general conference question. <laughs> You've been going for... It'll be 20 years this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. How, what have you noticed in just like overall changes? What seems to be staying the same 20 years out? Having that that historical experience. And also, I imagine being a page, you get more of a, a balcony view rather than digging deep into any one area of, of the legislation. I'm curious just... For your perspective on what's changed over 20 years, what hasn't changed, like a, well, like a bird's eye perspective. When I, I first went, I, I went and volunteered with MFSA and with RMN, um, and it, it was all new and shiny, and that was in Pittsburgh, and the the theme of the, the general conference was something related to water. And so we had brought um, bowls of water uh, for people as they were walking into the convention center. We were holding these like bowls of water, inviting people to remember their baptism as they they went in. Pretty benign. It's not making a political statement, whatever. But as soon as people realized that uh, we were from MFSA or from RMN, they would start to avoid us, walk around us. And... Um, be treated pretty poorly. And and that was really disappointing for me. Um, And I think after that, I I kind of realized if you're going to general conference, this is not the day to wear your your rainbow stole because some people will not engage with you whatsoever. Um, And and that was hard for me because I, I really did want to support full inclusion but are there ways to support full inclusion so that those who are on the fence would be willing to engage? Um, and I know that, especially in the years that I was in Upper New York, it was a, a big thing to wear the like the short stoles. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. Oh, it uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but I. Um, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing like the rainbow stole section um, at annual conference, but at general conference, it it really was a way to shut down conversation. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't remember my baptism with somebody that might have a rainbow on them. Like what (laughs) is that? (laughs) Oh my gosh. How is that reflective of the body of Christ at all? Wow. Yeah. it it's it was really striking to me um because i i wouldn't intentionally avoid folks who i knew were on the other side of a particular topic uh 
but when I became a, a page in, in 2008, um, and then following, um, I, I made a very intentional choice. You could volunteer as a page or you could volunteer as a marshal. And I, one of the district superintendents in upper New York is always a marshal, Bob Colvick Campbell. And um, he, he loves doing that. But what I see as um, the job of the marshal is to be a gatekeeper. And I think there's a time and a place to have gatekeepers, but that's not what I theologically am about. I'm about sharing the love notes and that's what pages do. They, and now, you know, with everybody texting, you know, do you really need somebody to pass notes? No, but um, pages also do the counting of, of the votes um, when they're in legislative sessions and um, help to distribute all the material that all the swag that goes on the table every day um, when they're actually in plenary. It's a critical function. So, yeah, I, I believe in, in passing the love notes. Yeah, it was funny. My parents went to church of the resurrection for one of their leadership um, events and mom's like have you ever heard of this guy his name's adam hamilton i'm like yeah and i've passed him many a note at general conference she's like wow he's famous mm -hmm. yep yep shout out to adam hamilton we had him on this podcast too it was oh, really wow. funny good conversation yeah yes he was very sweet we really liked him yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah. Thank you for sharing your general conference stories with us. It's, uh, you know, a, 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 another young clergywoman in the trenches is is kind of the role model we all need right now and one who has gone for it and yeah. lived to tell at least a few tales um, because there are many a day in this ministry where it just feels like I don't know if I'm going to survive to the next one, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. I, you know, I just mean that in a, you know, my, my coffee just isn't big enough for, for, to handle this Monday kind of sense, you know, mm -hmm. on that note, we often ask our podcast guests if they have like a war story or like a big, like struggle story in their ministry that they would like to share with us. I wonder if you have one. Um, well, I, I guess I will share a little bit about um, being called to being a district superintendent. Yeah, if that's all right. Oh, um, that's okay. That's, yeah. Okay. So I I had been a, a member of Troy Conference and I was ordained in the Troy Conference and then the Troy Conference ceased to exist in 2010 and because I was serving in New York State I became part of the Upper New York Conference and unexpectedly out of the blue. Um, in 2014, I received a phone call from a former colleague um, from the Troy Conference who was the district superintendent in Vermont. And she said, hey, you had marked back in 2010 that you'd be open to a move to Vermont. Are you still willing to, to move? And now this was at a time when I was serving the best church ever. And I would have never moved there you know, if, if I really could have, um, because they were just the most wonderful folks. Um, but I also knew that they were struggling financially and that pretty soon I was going to have to bump a local pastor so that I could remain in a full-time appointment or it was going to have to be moved from that appointment. And so I, I 
took the appointment in Vermont, which was a wonderful appointment. And I served five wonderful years there. And then in in January of 2019, I get a, a phone call from my district superintendent. And I was in the middle of pumping gas <laughs> when she called. But, you know, when your district superintendent calls, you like answer the phone. So I had her on speakerphone. But where the cabinet does their cabinet retreat, there's not great cell service. You kind of have to like stand in one place in the second floor and hold your phone out in a certain angle. And it's just, it's pretty awkward. Um, so she's, she called me and she said that the bishop needed to talk to me. And I, my heart sunk. I was like, oh no, <laughs> what did I do? I, I had a kind of a challenging um situation in the church the year before and, and um I I wasn't really sure that I wanted to continue at that appointment and I thought well maybe the bishop had heard about it and maybe I was I handled it poorly or I don't know you know you always go to that dark place right um but they uh they started to talk to me and then the the cell signal dropped and so I finished pumping my gas and I called her back and she said, the bishop wanted to know if you would something, something district superintendent. I thought she was asking me to go on superintendency committee. I was like, oh yeah, of course I'll go on superintendency committee. She's like, really? You'd be a district superintendent? I said, wait, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, that's not what I agreed to. Um and I said to her, well, I, I, I'm not yet 40. Like, can I be a district superintendent? Who you cares? Know? Okay. <laughs> Age. Let, let's, let's, yeah. let's these, you know, you are, you are probably a Gen Xer, you know, yeah. Gen Xer, millennial girls, Gen Z girls. If you're yeah. out there, don't be afraid <laughs> to take authority. If you are under the age of 40, please. And I'm glad you did. <laughs> I like yeah, that that rhymes a little too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take 40 if you're under 40. I like that. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so I I said that I needed to pray about it and I needed to talk to my husband. And um, I asked if I could meet with the bishop the next day because um, definitely a lot of imposter syndrome there, right? Like, mm -hmm. I... I I don't have the age. I don't have the wisdom. I've served just really amazing appointments, but that doesn't mean that I'm qualified to be the district superintendent. Um, so I, I met with the bishop the next day and I was trying to figure out like why he thought I would be the right one. Um, and he had said on the phone, you know, I, I'm just wanting to put you on a short list to be district superintendent. And there were two district superintendents that were cycling off the cabinet that year. Um, so I figured there was like multiple people on his shortlist. Mm -hmm. And surely he would talk to them and, and realize that I was not the right choice and leave me be. And I was the only person on the shortlist. It was a very, very short list. And I said to him... Um, you know, general conference is coming up in a few months and I just, 
and this was in 2019, spring of 2019. And I said, I, I just don't know that I um, could actually live out what the discipline's requiring of district superintendents if the traditionalist plan passes. Uh, and, you know, I just, I, I just want to be honest about that because, you know, what the traditionalist plan was asking basically was for a district superintendent to, to do witch hunts. And that's not who I am and that's not who I'm going to be. And I, I wanted to be fully transparent with him because I didn't want him to think he was getting one thing and then find that that was not the case. And he said, well, let me, let me talk to my cabinet. And he came back like a, a minute later. He's like, yeah, we're, we're all totally fine with that. And I said, okay. Um, but I, I was really worried that I was being asked because of the, you know, the stained glass cliff, you know, we have nothing else to lose. Why not have a young woman and look at our diversity. We have somebody who's young. Bishop Devadar was always convinced I was a millennial. Uh, I was born in 79. So I, I'm very much the end of Gen X and I'm you proud are, about you that. You were just on the cusp. <laughs> but but he, he would go to uh, Council of Bishops meetings and he'd brag about how he had a millennial on the cabinet. And I'm like, no, you have an exennial. You have an exennial on the cabinet. <laughs> But um, I, I, I really felt like, was I asked because I, I checked these boxes or was it because he could see the giftedness in me that I, at that point in time, couldn't see myself? And it, honestly, it took about three years before I was finally able to say like, yes, I do have the gifts for this. Yes, this is a crazy time to be in ministry, uh, a crazy time to be in a district superintendent, a crazy time to be a United Methodist. But I, I really do feel that I do have the gifts and graces to be able to do this at this time. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I love that your story essentially takes the turn that you thought you were saying yes to being on a committee, but you ended up being <laughs> locked into this role instead because it feels like this is what our parishioners tell us over and over and it's why they don't say yes to being on committees <laughs> absolutely yeah i was like i can you know the the joy of being um uh, on loan from upper new york for several years was that i was not allowed to be on any district or conference committees and so for two beautiful years I had, I was serving a church that didn't believe in any meetings more than quarterly. So that was like, that's a good thing. That's also a really bad thing. But it, it, um, it was a beautiful thing. Like I got to spend evenings with my kiddos when my kids were born, I was an associate pastor and we had night meetings every night of the week, Monday through Thursday, every week of the month. And the only reprieve I would have is if there was a fifth whatever. And then there was only one, one day of that week that I had a, a scheduled meeting. Um, so I went from having all the meetings to two churches. that didn't really believe in meetings except for like quarterly. And then a district superintendent where I don't see my family basically for three months. Um, but Hey, my office is in my house. So in theory, the, see me in passing as I walk the, you know, 15 feet to my office. Um, but uh, a gift I think has been during the pandemic, 
that Zoom has really taken off. So uh, I don't have to be at all the churches all the time. I do think that I build better relationships if I do go in person. Um, but it's also important, especially this year, because I have a high school senior for me to be able to be mom as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um I, I saw the, uh, the the news unfold when you became a district superintendent, and I had shared with I was in the process as as in the way station between commissioning and ordination at the time, and I had shared with my ordination mentor, huh? I'm surprised they made that decision. I just I would and, and not because of any lack of giftedness on your part. So if there's anybody who's 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 like doubting your, it's not me because like you you'd bomb. Um, Oh, you're very welcome. Um, it 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 was it was simply a matter of like, wow, I really thought you had to be at least ten years older to be a DS. You know? Yeah, I I thought you know maybe it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility because I am kind of off the chart J, so administration is is one of my giftedness. But I thought, yeah, like fifty five, sixty year olds get that kind of a thing. At least in my home conference. Everybody who got it, it was their last thing before they retired. And although I could technically retire in July because I have 20 years of ministry, um, I have a kid that's going to be a freshman in college. So um, I'm not going to retire. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And you so, have many years left that you could serve us and, you know, share your many gifts. May I ask... Um, Based on your experiences, um, and maybe you have some ideas here, because I think this is something that um, our conference is struggling with. What are things that um, cabinets and um, district superintendents and even, uh, you know, the order of deacons or the order of elders can do to support uh, clergy who are young, have families, have concerns, not just about um where they're going to live, but like, of say, in the case of um, if you have a disabled kid, making sure that they're in a location where they can receive services or they have a spouse who works and maybe the sp spouse is the one that has to carry the health insurance and they can't move. They have to be within a certain area um, and just the overall stress of being a pastor and a parent. Um, do you have some insights into ways that the church could um, be better about supporting that? Yeah, I'd love to hear that too. So New England Conference annually asks pastors, regardless of their gender or their age, um, you know, do you want to stay? Do you want to go? What are your family restrictions? And um, the two bishops that I've served under in upper or in New England have been really um, clear that that the family considerations are really important. Um, some of the challenges are then when there are churches that are open, good churches, that there are not people who are willing to itinerate outside of a hour radius of Boston. Um, part of that is the district I serve, but um, 
I know for um, the district superintendents in, in Northern Maine, um, New Hampshire, and Vermont, sometimes that's a struggle. And that definitely worked to my benefit when uh, the church in St. Albans, Vermont came open because it's um, just a f- few miles from the Canadian border. Um, you know, it's God's country. Um, and I, I had served a church near Plattsburgh um, in my first appointment, three-point charge in my first appointment. So I, I, I'd been part of, you know, God's country before and loved it. And so when uh, the appointment came up in St. Albans, which is uh, in northern, northern Vermont, um, there wasn't anybody in the New England Conference that was open to it, that had the experience that they needed for this congregation that was... Um, contemporary and traditional music both and um, to manage a staff. And um, so then they were like, oh, well, let's look at that list of <laughs> the Troy folks because, you know, they might be willing to go. Um, but I, I think for for cabinets, they really do need to take in consideration because a lot of times our spouse is the primary breadwinner. Um, a lot of times there are uh, family situations, whether it's a disabled child, whether it's um, an ailing parent, um, that there are these considerations, and we we do try very hard to take those into consideration. Um, that doesn't mean that there's always magically um, a full time appointment, and I'm sure that Upper New York is having the same issues that New England is, that there are less and less full-time appointments every year, uh, whether it's churches that have disaffiliated, whether it's churches that have gone from full-time to part-time. I know in New England, there's not a lot of three-quarter-time church appointments, and that's because you have to have health insurance if you're three-quarter-time or full-time. And so a lot of churches intentionally choose to go to half-time when they can no longer sustain a full-time pastor. Um, mm-hmm. so that they don't have to be on the hook for health insurance. And I know that it's also challenging uh, because a lot of times our spouse has uh, a better health insurance plan than the conference can offer, um, but we don't have an option to opt out. Whereas in um, when I was serving in Upper New York, my husband worked for the state of New York and and he had a really great insurance plan and I was able to opt out of paying my portion. Unfortunately, my church still had to pay their mm-hmm. portion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, the cabinet tries really hard to take that into consideration. And in New England, we're also, um, we have some things if if somebody needs to go on parental leave uh, the the board of ordained ministry does have some grants for um, supporting the church so that the church can continue to pay the pastor full time plus having um, the the pulpit supply and the pastoral care um, covered um, but I, I do want to say I would encourage you if you haven't talked to Reverend Diane Keniston, uh, who's um, an elder from West Virginia Conference. She's actually living in Connecticut right now. Um, she's gathering together an incredible group of folks who are working on um, legislation for annual conferences on parental leave. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, clarification that needs to happen, and it's it's not consistent from conference to conference. Uh, 
about the support. I know when I had both my boys um, in the Troy conference, I was lucky because I was an associate. So they didn't need to pay for um, pulpit supply for me or additional pastoral care. The senior pastor just took that on. Um, but I, I remember some of my colleagues um, only got six weeks paid. And I was lucky because I was at the fancy church that could afford to give me eight weeks paid. Um, but I, I watched as other colleagues of mine have now received 12 and, and 13 weeks uh, for parental leave. And I, I just think, you know, I, I didn't even know to advocate for myself at that time. And I, I felt like I couldn't advocate for myself. I just had to be grateful for whatever was being offered. And um, I, I so appreciate how some of the folks who have followed behind me are, are more intentional about advocating. Um, and I, I had fairly easy. Well, I think, um, so like I didn't need more than eight weeks, but I know other folks might. Yeah. I did. Learned it the hard and, way too. But I didn't get more than eight the first time around. Yeah, well, in New York we, State, I don't know how it works for churches, but paid family leave is like a mandatory thing for, and paid sick leave are now like legally mandatory, I think, for businesses. So I'm not sure how it works for churches. Um, yeah, churches, at last I checked, are not with it. They're under the threshold so that they don't. They, they don't have to require it. But it's still paid for through New York state taxes. So. Churches don't have people working payroll who know how to work with that, how to process that paperwork. Mm -hmm. I know I've had four different babies in three different churches. <laughs> and so I've had different maternity leave experiences each time. The first time around, I was very, very fortunate because I was associate pastor under Teresa Sivers and she knew her stuff and she I, I, she just like worked magic. I don't I don't even know how she did it. When I got when I had my second baby, I was solo pastor um, and had to kind of figure it all out on my own. And I had a treasurer there that did not like change did not have positive experiences with female clergy. Um, just a very difficult scenario all around. And so um, I ended up having to just like do all the paperwork myself and research the laws myself and figure it all out myself. And, and even then, New York state paid the church less than the amount of my salary. And so, and so it still ended up costing the church more mm -hmm. money than <laughs> I, I, I still took my full. Yeah, Cause leave. it only, the maximum amount is 66%. Yeah. 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 Um, the church was not excited about that because so the whole my point pulpit supply. Yeah. So, okay, then this is a, this is probably, sorry, Megan, and I'm bringing this up okay. because it sounds like New York's or our conference needs to be carrying disability insurance that covers the rest of people's salaries if they're out for paid family leave. Yeah. Um, that's another story for another time. 
maybe it does cover that, but there's no, like what I would love to see is just a pamphlet of like, Hey, planning on taking a maternity leave. Here's how you deal with the HR stuff. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Because a lot of very few pastors know how to do it. I just kind of Googled my way through it. And Mm -hmm. honestly, like my, my HR right now, of course we've got an SPRC, but they're not trained in the ways of HR. They're faithful disciples who are doing good work, but don't have the training of like a corporate HR. And my payroll guy is like an 80 some odd year old man who handwrites my paychecks. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's at what he does, but he's not, he doesn't know how to process a maternity leave and make all of that happen. So yeah, if, if conference just had like a, a simple step-by-step guide to figure out all of that interplay between state and, mm-hmm. and all of that, then it would be better for, for the pastors and the churches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So, Hey, yeah, there you go. There's some more stuff. And I'm actually kind of surprised that the churches aren't like banding together to um, lobby for Medicare for all, because that would solve our huge health insurance cost problem, wouldn't it? It would would also address the fact that like our conference insurance is, you can't find worse health insurance anywhere in the world. It's just awful. And we can't get a better plan because our pool is a lot of older high risk people for various health issues. So if if we had a Medicare for all situation where everyone was in the pool including a whole bunch of young healthy people, then we'd all mm-hmm. have way better health insurance including the people that need it the most. Mm-hmm. The you know the the higher risk people with lots of different chronic health problems that are at the doctor all the time. They would have better cost too. You know. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So I think there's a lot to that question, Jess, of like how how can conferences better support families? And and I think a lot of it, you know, we're we're taught to be like you were saying, Megan, we're taught to be grateful for what we have and to not advocate too fiercely and to not make waves too much. And I think in upper New York, we've just come off of um We've come off of a a stint in which our leadership at the very top of the ladder has not made it feel like a good option to self-advocate as a young woman. Um, I think. Emily, can I can I just say one more time how much I love you because (laughs) you take the most bristly, difficult things to say, and you say them in just the loveliest way and this is why we're friends because i would have thrown several f-bombs into that sentence so thank you for being here listeners ought to know that last night in a text thread with natalie and jess i dropped an f-bomb and i think that natalie might have like had a conniption (laughs) anyway yeah yeah, no so i i i think as much as we're taught to just be grateful for what we have, I really think a lot of this boils down to money. Like if we didn't have breathtaking amounts of student debt, if we didn't have um, crippling medical debt for a lot of, for a lot of our clergy, if we had more means to save money for a down payment so that a move to a location where there's not a personage 
isn't a starter for us. Um, you know, it, it's lovely that that there's a housing allowance in lieu of a parsonage, but what if you don't have tens of thousands of dollars to put down as a down payment? That fifteen hundred a month or whatever you get for your housing allowance isn't going to be helpful. And so, you know, I it feels and like in a lot of areas, fifteen hundred dollars a month isn't going to pay the rent. No. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of feels like an unsolvable problem because I know the churches don't have the money. I know the conference offices don't have the money. Like I read all these budgets, but just from the pastor's perspective, I think, I think m more money would solve a lot of the problems. Yeah. Hard to argue with that. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I I'm grateful that in this district, most of the churches do have parsonages. Now I've, I've been in some not so fabulous parsonages and then I've been in the McMansion in uh, Clifton Park. So it, you know, it's, it, it's hard um, because you never know what you're going to get in your next appointment, but um, there's a few churches that don't have parsonages and they want their pastor to live in the community, but they can't afford. Yeah even with a very generous housing allowance, they can't afford um, to get housing and the utilities that would be covered if the church had a, a parsonage. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of other conferences have completely gone away with parsonages and I just, I, uh, Desert Southwest is one and I, I just, I, I think Baltimore, Washington's another one that's pretty much like that. And I, I can't imagine how expensive it would be. Yeah. Do you know, do they do like relocation bonuses or anything like that? I know um, in, in secular world or corporate world or whatever, um, if, if a major company asks an employee to relocate for work, they will often pay them an amount to do so. I haven't heard that, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. That's not a thing in, in New England, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you ladies will indulge me in taking this in a slightly different direction, in the midst of all of this, like, very difficult, complicated, you know, nuanced stuff that we have to constantly navigate in the, you know, and as, it, you know, it, when we look into the, the, the businessier side of what it is to be a minister, I'm wondering, Megan, where you find continued strength and inspiration? Mm. That's a great question. I, I, <laughs> um, I, I find a lot of uh, strength and inspiration from a lot of different places, but you know, uh, my my clergy siblings, in particular, um, I have an incredible uh, set of, of best friends who are are ministers. Um, some are still serving. Some have uh, retired. Uh, but I also I'm a part of um, the Young Clergy Women um, Alumna Group. And uh, all the really incredible things I've done as a minister is basically because I've 
found that inspiration from from them um you know they suggest things and i'm like oh i could advocate for myself i never thought of that and it, part of that is working with ecumenical partners um and and their systems different so you know in the method system you can't really go in and say like to the district superintendent at a take-in, um, gosh, you know, you're offering me 50. I'd really like to have that be 52 mm. or whatever. Um, Cause that's just not a thing that, you know, mm. it, it is done in, in United Methodist circles, but I, I've found inspiration from these colleagues from um, my CWA that uh, have offered like how to how to advocate for other things and, and or oh, you know this this ministry is is really hard. Have have you thought about doing X? And so I'm really grateful um, for for them and for their wisdom. And hopefully, at some point, I can offer a pearl of wisdom to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's the greatest sign of, you know, success in the ministry when you have wisdom that you can give to other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Megan, if there was one thing that you could tell the world about God, what would it be? This is always my favorite question. We ask everybody. Everybody. Uh, yeah. I think the thing that I want the world to know about God is that God loves you exactly as you are. There's no ifs, no ands, no buts. And that's not a really great pearl of wisdom or a deep theological statement, but I, I, it's what rings true to me. It's perfect. Yeah, I'm going to need that to wash over me today. Natalie, should could could we make like a hodgepodge audio mashup of all just the answers to that question from across all the podcasts? Oh, it would take quite a bit of editing, but let me see what my computer magic can do because we've got some wonderful answers to that question from all the all the people that we've been blessed to have on this podcast. What if we waited until so we would give you a lot of time? We could wait until the end of our next season. And that would be like the last episode. <laughs> then you have enough time to put it together. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's coming. Perhaps it's coming soon to a podcast near you. But either way, Megan, thank you so, so, so much for joining us for this. This is a tremendous blessing to us, and it will be to the people who listen to this. Well, thank you for having me. I know it's been a, a much delayed um, I took renewal leave this summer, and I would strongly encourage any and all to to look at where they're at and, and to consider if they have not done a, a renewal leave in the last quadrennia to do that. Do it, do it, do it. I know that there's not any great magical funding source, at least in New England, but there are wonderful resources out there. You guys could go uh, to Silver Bay. Um, for a week and, and just to go and enjoy this time away so that you can uh, reconnect with God. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank, Thank you. you.
Peace and love. Yeah.